Every question that you ask of yourself, every answer that you seek, every way in which you want to improve has to do with this life right now. And as the old saying says, you're going to be dead a lot longer than you're going to be alive. And so to ignore the fact that you are mortal and that you're going to face this at some point, I'm afraid is not being realistic. At age 46, Joe Shoup is confronting his own mortality right now. Since being diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, Joe has contemplated the meaning of his life, resolved to find reasons for optimism, and battled both physically and mentally in this ultimate test in life. We talk about this and a whole lot more in this powerful and inspiring conversation. I'm very proud to introduce to you all my longtime friend, Joe Shoup. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. My guest today is Joe Shoup. And my relationship with Joe goes back almost 27 years. It was uh, June of 1993, and uh, Joe ventured into my Vector Cutco office in San Jose, California. Uh, started with the company that summer as a sales rep, advanced into management with us, was an assistant manager, was a branch manager, actually uh, ran the pilot office as the pilot office manager in the summer of 1997 a summer that had some special significance that we might end up getting into today. He graduated from Santa Clara University with a degree in business, uh, was in a variety of corporate roles over the years, and Joe and I were always in touch. Uh, We hung out from time to time. We played golf from time to time. And ultimately, as a sign of uh, my respect for Joe, there was a time where I was a lead investor in a startup company and uh, and I brought Joe in to be the head of operations for the company. And so we had a chance to spend some time together during that stretch as well. Joe ultimately left for his calling to be a pastor. Uh, he was in Santa Cruz, California for a while, Boise, Idaho for a while. And at this point in time, uh, Joe is facing one of the ultimate challenges of life. He is battling stage four lung cancer. It's a serious challenge, of course, and I'm sure it's something that we're going to talk about today. We have a lot of ground to cover during this podcast. I'm very excited about this conversation. Uh, Joe Shoup, thanks so much for making time for the podcast. Well, I appreciate you 
having me, Dan. It's good to connect this way from snowy Sandpoint, Idaho. 14 to 30 inches this weekend, if you can believe that. <laughs> wow. Well, we have zero inches here in San Jose, California, <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty much consistent with every day of every year. Uh, let's get right into talking about your experience with Vector, Joe, because I know that uh, we have a lot of stories to share and things that we can talk about. So tell us about uh, starting with the company back in the summer of 93. Well, you know, I turned 46 not too long ago, so I don't remember much of anything, but... Um, <laughs> That's why we have you. Does your audience know the kind of memory that you have? Or <laughs> uh, if, if I maybe. get any details wrong, you can just jump in and correct the details of my life. But anyway, here's what I remember. I'll, I can remember some things from the initial interview. I mean, when you cut the rope, that was cool. But when you cut the leather, because I had limited cooking background. So when that table knife cut straight down through the lever through the leather thinking that it was a serrated knife of course uh, i was in you know i wanted <laughs> to be a part of what we were doing here but then we had a couple challenges right there was the sample kit cost now i don't remember what was it 140 dollars 160 dollars at the time for the sample kit cost and that presented two problems you may know the problems first my parents <laughs> explaining to my parents how a job that was supposed to pay me 1025 was now going to cost me 140 160 dollars <laughs> the second problem was that that dollar amount was greater than my net worth at the time <laughs> so i was going to have to borrow the money even to get started the one thing that was working in my favor though was that my parents owned cutco so when I came home to show them the product, they already had it, which means they had bought it on their own. Now, uh, just to test that memory of yours, Dan, do you know the rep who sold the Cutco to my parents? Oh, my God. Do I know the rep who sold the Cutco to your parents? He was one of my neighbors, became a manager with the company. Oh, my God. Randy Hugh? <laughs> That's it was it. Randy Hugh? Whoa! <laughs> my original district manager was the guy that sold your parents Cutco, Randy Hughes. Right. Wow! And that I believe awesome. he's still in the Bay Area and is a dad, has kids. So if he's listening, shout out to Randy Hugh. I saw him about uh, eleven months ago. So really, yeah, yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's cool. Awesome. So, well, that that was the sort of an initial starting point of the Vector career. A lot of fun. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. You'll be glad to know the kits are free now for uh, for our reps. So the, the company has what? grown to a level where we can do that. So anyway, well, let's talk about some of your experiences, the things you remember. You know, what were some of the key lessons? Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of that for a bit. Well, one of the things that one of the greatest experiences of my vector career would be when the host of this show. Well, you said we played some golf together, right? Uh, maybe you forgot. You actually did something that most golfers never do in their lifetime. <laughs> How can I forget? <laughs> Not only did Dan Cassetta get a hole-in-one, which is incredible, and I've never had a hole-in-one before, and most golfers, better than I, really good golfers, never have a hole-in-one, but the host of this show, Dan Cassetta, had a hole-in-one on a par four yes now 
I want to qualify this. It was an executive course. It was a but, cheap par four. <laughs> but the hole was a dog leg right. We couldn't see the hole from where we were. We could only kind of shoot for it over a tree. He hit a nice fade around the corner. It rolled. We were playing a scramble. So the ladies who were on our team were at the red tee. They started jumping up and down. I didn't even take my shot. I just ran towards the green and looked down into the hole and found the ball. So incredible. <laughs> That's right. I do remember you running in front of me down the fairway and uh, stopping at the hole as I was approaching the green and looking back and kind of nodding your head like it's in there. Like I thought it was off the back for sure. So that's <laughs> well, right. Well, that was one of the, the greatest experiences of my vector career. <laughs> but I would say there were, there's actually a lot of um, things. We could talk about this our entire time, but let's see if I can just think of two or three things that maybe had the biggest impact on me. Yeah. Of course, I was a student at Santa Clara University. Cyber Bron fist bump right here. Bro Broncos. You know, boom. Yeah. Um, and at that time, still, there was this idea that a, a college degree was a huge deal towards your success. Not to demean it today, but there were so many friends of mine and students at the university that felt that if they graduated from Santa Clara, businesses would just be lining up to offer them jobs. And my experience with Vector, not just you, but the other managers there, sort of helped me to understand from the beginning that that wasn't going to be the case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I started in between my freshman and sophomore year of college. So I worked virtually throughout with Vector while I was going to college. And I was way more prepared. I mean, I was the only one I knew who had real experience. I didn't, you know, wait tables or, you know, clean up golf clubs on a golf course or something like that. And, you know, I had those jobs in my past and there's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of being able to develop skills that would be usable in the workforce, Vector did that uh, for me. So that was very important. The other things I can think of is the first time that, I began to entertain the idea of doing management with the company or when that was presented to me as something I might do. I remember watching people do talks and give training and run meetings. And I remember thinking to myself, maybe naively at the time, but I remember thinking to myself, I, I can do that. You know, I think I can do that. Like, I think I could speak up front in front of a group of people and be okay. Mm -hmm. And it, that was my first experience with public speaking, and my whole career would basically, in one way, shape, or form, it would involve public speaking, whether it was in sales or sales management, or as I became a pastor later on. So that was a, a big part of my development. And then let me just name one more thing, if it's not too much. The most important thing, I think, that I learned from my experience with Vector was that it was hard. And I think that also prepared me because in a, a B2C world, a business-to-consumer world that we were in, our numbers were very high, meaning if we made phone calls, we'd get a substantial. I don't remember at the time how many phone calls I would have to make to get a certain amount of appointments. I knew the numbers then, but... 
those numbers were really in our favor. Mm -hmm. As soon as I went into the B2B world, which was right when I graduated from college and immediately after I left Vector, those numbers became substantially more difficult. Mm -hmm. So you go through, I went through six weeks of training for my first B2B sales job. And on the last week, you start making phone calls to customers and there would be otherwise apprehension if it wasn't for my experience with Vector. Right. So that was that was the most important thing was that we knew how I knew how to get on the phone. Others didn't. And it was harder than in a B to C context. And so I, I think I was more prepared than most people. Yeah, that's great. There's so many elements of what it takes to succeed in the real world that people get to experience through Vector beyond just making phone calls. We are that everything is selling and that, you know, in life, we're always influencing in some manner, whether it, it is selling ourselves or selling our ideas or building relationships, connecting with people. These are all things that we have a chance to practice and learn in Vector. And for some people, you know, phone time in Vector was something that they had to, you know, deal with some apprehension and overcome. For other people, Joe, like simple person-to-person -person interaction, especially these days, is is difficult for a lot of young people. And it's something that they have to kind of get out of their comfort zone and work through. And uh, you know, working in Vector and Cutco gives them that chance to do that. So it's pretty cool that you, you know, had those experiences early on. Let's hear a little bit about your path after you got out of college and some of the career experiences that you've had. So as I mentioned, I worked in a B2B sales, sales management, and even an executive within startup companies, uh, an executive capacity. And mostly, every company I worked for was in advertising. So I was able to develop a niche there. So it was something I could learn how to do, and it would help me kind of develop over time. I think, you know, for some people that are listening who maybe have yet to kind of find their thing, you know, in their career yet, maybe they were like me, you've graduated from college, you're working a job and you feel like it's not going anywhere yet. I think sometimes you just keep working where you're at and you find that there are aspects of your job even. Perhaps you haven't had as many promotions or a promotion yet, but there's aspects of your job that you begin to specialize in, that you become sort of an expert on, that people look to you as far as you sort of knowing what it's all about and how to do things. And that's where you might find that niche as far as your career goes. And that's where I really began to enjoy my work more so was when I started working for some startup companies and began to work in sort of an executive capacity, was involved in much more of the overall operation, not just in sales. And I really enjoyed that. And I was able to use things that I had learned and specialized in in order to make myself attractive to those companies. Well, actually, along those lines, the thing that I had begun to kind of specialize, not even really realizing that I had, but again, something I had learned from Vector and had translated into the B2B advertising sales to small and medium-sized business world was sort of the math behind sales. In other words, what do we expect to pay the salesperson and what do we expect them to do in order to make that kind of money? Yeah, that's that's great. I, I think it's so important that whatever we're doing that we are spending a lot of time uh, in what I would call our superpower. 
doing the things that are, are really in our superpower. And in, in any job, there are a, a range of roles or activities that one has to do. And what I think is an instructive concept is to be thinking about, you know, how can you train people and delegate off some of the things that maybe aren't in your superpower and do more things that are in your superpower or find a job that enables you to be spending most of your time, you know, in your superpower, finding your niche, as you said. That to me is a, uh, is a critical element of success. One of my most recent guests talked about figuring out what is your personal monopoly which means in, in her words, right? What is the one thing that you can bring to an organization that other people can't bring that makes you really unique and valuable, uh, in the marketplace? And these are all things I think that you worked to find. And I can remember, you know, in when, you know, when I became an investor in this project, um, what was it? Maybe 11 years ago now thinking of you as like, well, you're the guy I would want to be in there, right? Helping run it day to day because you had those qualities and skills and you'd sort of crafted out your personal monopoly as being someone who would be really good at those things. Do you remember, Dan, we met with the number two guy from Charles Schwab one time? Do you yes. remember that man? One of those, re that restaurant in Los Gatos. And um, he did the very thing. He trains his people at Charles Schwab to do the very thing that I was doing, though I didn't realize I was doing it. When an investor, you had someone on a couple episodes ago, actually, I think the latest podcast, who is in venture capital. And so she knows all about this. A venture capitalists, I've done pitches to venture capitalists, they're not looking to invest. They're looking to find all the reasons why they shouldn't invest. So when we met with the Charles Schwab guy, his objective was to find the holes in our plan, not to tell us how good we were. And that was an eye-opening experience. But in essence, that's what I was doing on job interviews. I was not really realizing I was doing it, but I was meeting with businesses and I was telling them why it wouldn't work. And to a lot of them, that made me attractive to them. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And uh, you know, obviously, in a, in a startup environment, that's an important approach to take. This guy that you just described is Rich Arnold. And to this day, I have a good relationship with Rich. He's in the, my mastermind. Really? He's in my mastermind group that I have events with uh, several awesome. times a year. And he's a great guy. He's really insightful for sure. And I think about, this makes me think about one of my mentors I was talking with about angel investing and, you know, the process of looking at companies that are not necessarily in the very, very beginning stage, but are have hatched a little bit, but they're also well before getting into the venture capital stage. And they're looking for, you know, investors to come in and, and put in 10 or 25 or $50,000 a piece or something like that. And my mentor said to me, uh, he says, the problem with you, Dan, is you're too optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? He says, yeah, when you're looking at angel investing, you can't be looking at all the reasons why you should invest because it's easy to find them. You have to be looking at why you shouldn't. And then when you don't find any reasons why you shouldn't, those are the ones that you invest in. And then you invest. And mm. still there, you're, you want to invest one-tenth of what you have to play with. And right. <laughs> because there's a 10% chance it's going to succeed, right? Uh, <laughs> so, so it's pretty that cool how, it's pretty cool how you learn to kind of dig into the metrics of businesses. And, and I do think that's stuff that you began understanding through your Cutco experience. And it, it was because we had to know if, if you're, objective for a push period was to sell five thousand dollars 
where you had to know exactly how many appointments based upon your closing percentage and your average order size. You had to know how many appointments a day you needed to have. You needed to know how much phone time you would need in order to get that done. And you would have to schedule that phone time throughout the push period. So all of that, you know, the metrics, the mathematics behind it became just sort of something that I learned how to do and became valuable to other companies. Yeah, exactly. And you were working at a time when $5,000 was pretty good during a push period. <laughs> you know, do you know what the, you know what the record, what do you think the record is today for one rep? For oh no. Well, well, didn't somebody even in my day did 50,000, right? Didn't they? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. A little after your day, John Berghoff did 69,000. Yeah. And wow. that, re- that record stood for like 10 years or something until maybe 2012 or something like that. So, but, uh, what's yeah. the record now? Several Is people, just like- several people now have busted a hundred K for a two week push period. <laughs> That's right. That's incredible. That's yeah. right. Yep. Pretty awesome. So ultimately, uh, Joe, you decided to become a pastor. What made you take on this calling? Well, that's the word right there. It was truly a calling, a true vocation. You did a podcast a little while back on bad advice we've all received. And one of the things you talked about was not doing what you love, but loving what you do, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, so important for young people to understand. I think, I know I'm sounding like my age now, but I think a lot of young people have this idea that, well, I'm going to take over the world and that's great. But sometimes that doesn't happen right away. And as far as your objectives for yourself, what you want to be when you grow up or what your career aspirations are. And so I think it's so important to love what you do figure out the game in your job figure out what aspects you do enjoy and and do those things but for me i did love what i did and the reason why i loved being a pastor was because every moment of my day is infused with trying to change lives that's all you do there's no profit motive you know i mean we rebuilt and remodeled our entire church in my time as a pastor but and we grew we had those objectives we wanted to see growth obviously church wants to grow but that's not really the primary objective but it's to see people changed and that involves preaching it involves individual counseling it involves small group development and developing leaders and other pastors and things of that nature. There's a board that I ran, which involved a lot of development of those individuals as well. So everything you do as a pastor is developing people, is changing people's lives, if possible. Mm -hmm. And you did this in Santa Cruz for a while and then in Boise for a while, is that right? Well, just actually in the Santa Cruz area, I was in Capitola, actually, and the church is still there now. But yeah, I was there about five years. And I succeeded in taking a really small church and initially making it even smaller right away. <laughs> <laughs> and then over time, what was fun was to watch the growth and to watch people come. Because we were on just this little building. It wasn't that big. We had to go to two services in order to fit people in because we could only fit you know, 150, 180 people in the building. So to watch people come, we only had six parking spaces. They had to cross the street and things like that. So it was just fun to watch um, that happen over time. And yeah, it was uh, truly the 
the greatest experience of my life. It was really a lot of fun. Well, let's shift gears a little bit here, Joe. Let's fast forward now uh, to February of 2019. Mm-hmm. So about a year ago. And you were experiencing some issues with your hip and you went in to see the doctor. And let's talk about what unfolded from there. So a couple visits to my family doctor. We talked to her about what was going on with me. I was getting what we called sort of random pain. It wasn't consistent and it was super painful. And she was fairly dismissive of it. She didn't really think it was a big deal. She didn't even send me to the orthopedist right away. We had to go back a second time. I was also felt sick. I was coughing. Some other things were going on. And by the second time, she realized there was maybe a little more to this and thought we ought to possibly get a scan or something. So I went to the orthopedist. Now, he was also dismissive at first. He, he gave me a cortisone shot, said, you'll feel better in no time. All of this was taking time. You know, it was hard to get in to see the orthopedist. We'd leave messages. They wouldn't return our calls. I mean, it really did drag on for quite a while. And the, the one thing I would say was there really wasn't any urgency in anybody that we were seeing. So a couple of weeks went by and I was still having pain. And Becky was calling to get some pain medication for me. And it was a Sunday and we ran out. And so we called the hospital and there was a doctor there who all of a sudden dropped everything and looked at what was going on. I had already taken the MRI. He just looked at it and went, you need to get your husband down here right away. And so we went down there. Now, I was somewhat prepared. I found out that day that I had stage four cancer, right? But I sort of knew that because... The report that the orthopedist sent to the hospital and to my family doctor used the word metastasize, which means that the cancer had spread. Mm -hmm. So at least I knew that I had a cancer that was not contained in a major organ. So that was something that I was being educated on. I have a metastasized cancer. What does that mean? But I didn't know what kind. I'll give you an example. I have a friend in Boise, a good friend of mine who has been stage four, I believe, lymphoma for like 10 years now, he's been in remission. Mm -hmm. So you don't know what kind of cancer you have. And so I wanted to, you know, find out first and read up. I did know it was metastasized. I knew it had spread, but I wasn't initially concerned. Even when he said you have stage four, you know, then he said you have stage four lung cancer. So Then I did the thing that I shouldn't have done was I went online, which is not a good idea. And by the way, if I could tell your audience one thing, when you have these kinds of things, don't go online. There's a couple reasons why you shouldn't go online. And I know you will anyway, right? (laughs) Because people do. But one, you might get really bad news and it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. Or you might get good news and it's not that good. Now, you could get the exact diagnosis, but you might as well just wait until a doctor is able to give it to you. That's just what I would would counsel along those lines. I Mm -hmm. was listening to a comedian a couple (laughs) days ago or last week who basically said, like, 100 years from now, I think we're going to be saying something like, 
and we let those people look at the internet back then and we let <laughs> people and children look at the internet because you know there is a lot of misinformation on there or there's information that's not tailored towards your condition and right. we're not skilled enough most of us in understanding or knowledgeable enough i should say in understanding our condition enough to qualify it through the internet so we don't always know everything that's happening there so anyway there were there are really quick there are different kinds of cancers think of alex trebek today right alex trebek has stage four pancreatic cancer which unless you have a very rare disease is the worst of the stage four diseases right meaning it comes with the least amount of life expectancy mm-hmm. something like three to five percent live beyond five years right it's a very very low number so what i needed to know was what was stage four lung cancer and unfortunately it's the second worst of those cancers mm. stage four lung cancer is again all of the stage fours are considered incurable but again the life expectancy is you know not very long right when i asked that doctor or when my wife and i both asked you know how long do i have he said well i've had some patients who've managed to live about a year and a half that's what he told me at the time even that dan wasn't ultimately that heavy for me my initial reaction was i was pretty stoic it wasn't that real to me but then as i sat on it and began to think about it i began to think of my wife Mm -hmm. and i began to think i don't have children as you know but i began to think of my wife and i began to think of her doing this without me and don't get me wrong if anyone knows my wife she's as capable of a person you know everybody likes her instantly like she befriends everyone she meets she she doesn't need me but she thinks she does and that's a good thing for me <laughs> but anyway i thought about her i thought about her doing this alone i thought about her being by herself i thought about a life she would live where i wouldn't be there and the seriousness and the heaviness of that and i remember just kind of reading on the internet and combining what the doctor told me with what the reports on the internet were about stage four lung cancer. And I remember at one point sort of turning to my dad, who was my mom and dad were with us. And I turned to my dad and I said, dad, please, would you take care of my wife? Because I knew that there, there would come a point where I wouldn't be able to do that. Mm -hmm. I guess I always assumed my wife would outlive me, but not like this. So, you know, and I think when I said that, I think that's when the four of us, my mom, my dad, and Becky and I stopped most of the smiles and the joking, and it became a much more serious conversation. Yeah, I think it says something about you that your the heaviest thoughts you had were not about yourself and about you, you know, leaving the world ultimately, but more of the concern for Becky and um, for, uh, you know, the experience that she would have. And and I do feel like for, you know, most people in the world, this sort of experience, particularly if you have a loved one that passes away, it's a lot harder on the people that are left behind. And uh, that is uh, kind of a reality that uh, is a difficult part of this. So it it was interesting to hear those initial thoughts and emotions that you had. I'd love to hear how your thoughts and emotions have evolved 
over the last year as you've taken on treatment and, uh, and you know, looked toward the future? Well, I think my, my thoughts are still a work in progress. And you said it. I think if we were all only looking at this completely selfishly, I think we'd rather go first, you know, to your point. We'd rather go first if I was just approaching this selfishly. So as time has gone along, this has evolved into a ministry for me. It's uh, evolved into an opportunity to meet people where they're at, to talk with people as I'm able. I'm not always able because of my health, but you know, I've, I've stayed still as active as I can be in, you know, my Christian community and in my church. I've taught, you know, I'm no longer a pastor. I don't do anything regularly, but I've taught a few times. And I think, and virtually everybody knows my condition. And I think that that helps and encourages people. Certainly that, you know, nothing changed in terms of what I believe. It actually just strengthened it. And I think it impacts people around you. It impacts people around anybody when they're going through something and they're facing something this big. And if they continue to operate the way they normally would to the best that they're able to physically, I think that both inspires people, but it also gives them confidence that they can do the same thing. Yeah. Wow. That, uh, that's awesome that uh, you, you said that this evolved into an opportunity for you and that, that perspective on you know, challenge that you're facing is, uh, is really inspiring for, for me to hear and, and I'm sure for others to hear as well for you to view this in the, in the lens of, you know, how can I utilize this experience to meet other people where they're at, as you said, to share yourself with others, to help others in some capacity. So I think, uh, people would really want to hear, Joe, what is it like for someone who's so young to really consider their own mortality? Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. And, you know, that's a great question, Dan. I, in that question, I think is what I would really want your audience to glean from this. If they don't get anything else at all is that my age doesn't ultimately matter. You know, how old I am. We know that everybody is going to face this. Um, at one point or another. In fact, if I could get your listeners to do one thing, it would be to do just that, to consider their own mortality. Listen, Dan, with the, at the risk of making generalizations, I think I know a little bit about your audience. They're high achievers. They're very determined. They're tenacious. They're learners. They're always trying to improve themselves. If they set their mind to something, they find a way somehow, maybe after a few attempts, to accomplish it, right? They believe in themselves, not that they don't have setbacks, but they believe in themselves and they attempt to kind of balance work and home life and be ever growing and developing. And believe me, I was and to some extent am still that person also. And I that's why I have respect for the folks that you've brought on the show and the people that you've interviewed. There's a lot to learn from some of those folks. The problem that I have sometimes, and 
This is even feedback for Dan Cassetta. Is and this isn't just you or your audience. It's basically the whole world. Is virtually every question that you ask of yourself, every answer that you seek, every way in which you want to improve has to do with this life right now. And as the old saying says, you're going to be dead a lot longer than you're going to be alive. And so to ignore the fact that you are mortal and that you're going to face this at some point, I'm afraid is not being realistic. It's being somewhat foolish. You know, look at, I'm, I have that faith and I have a faith that gives me a confidence that I think most people don't have. And I'm afraid at times. So how much more so someone who hasn't asked these questions, who hasn't thought about this, who is putting these questions, you know, on the back burner, so to speak. I think that that would be something to consider. Hmm. And can you unpack that a little bit more? Like, what does that lead you to think that uh, others like myself and, and our audience should be, uh, should be thinking about, should be doing? I do think that there is something valuable in going to a funeral. I think there's something value in when you walk through a cemetery. And as you consider certain aspects of your life, to ask those big questions, you know, why am I here? Is there a God? If there is a God, am I accountable to him? What does he want from me? Ask those big questions, do the research, and try to figure this out, you know, for yourself. It's that important. Hmm. That's a, a deep concept to, to really ponder. What else have been some of the thoughts or challenges that you've faced as uh, you've entered into this this season of your life well there's some physical things and that is difficult to get used to you know some of the things that i face on a regular basis to get used to people serving and taking care you know taking care of me my wife my parents help out a lot and do a lot of things for me things that i should be able to do like lift a box my mom is doing, you know, my 76-year-old mom. And th those things are really hard. So, and just not not being able to do everything on my own. Taking a shower is very hard. I'm, I'm very uh, sensitive to temperature. I have to turn on a heater, you know, in order for it to not be so freezing afterwards. So, the, a lot of these things are, are challenges. Sleeping is hard. I have incredible pain in my hips because, you know, I not only had tumors in these areas, but I also have some other injuries. And so finding a side to sleep on each night is challenging. There's just a lot of challenges that come with the territory. So I don't want to make this seem like it's all easy just because I have a smile on my face and I still love life. I still love being able to talk with you and doing these kinds of things because there are some great challenges for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, uh, tell us about your optimism for the future. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a Christian and that is who I am first and foremost, you know, above everything else. That's what I am. So my answer to that question straight up is, I don't know how I could be optimistic outside of the revelation that we've been given of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He died and then he came back to tell us about it too, so that we could have that hope of resurrection someday. 
Now, there's good news on the horizon. We didn't expect this, right? I mean, first of all, we were talking about Alex Trebek earlier, right? And Alex Trebek is on chemo. Chemo is a rough way to treat cancer. I'm taking a targeted therapy drug. Unfortunately, in order to be treated for targeted therapy or immunotherapy, you have to have certain what they call markers in your body. And there's plenty of different markers you can have. I had just one, but it was only one that I needed that qualified me to take a cancer drug that's a targeted therapy drug that is working. When I first started this, again, we didn't have reason to think that. In fact, what they tell you is, what the first doctor told me was, the objective is to just help me to feel comfortable in dying. That was, he told me. I mean, you know, he was certainly not seeker sensitive. He gave it to me straight, but he ended up being a little off. There was a targeted therapy drug. And this is another reason, by the way, that I don't recommend people do too much internet research because the internet is always out of date at least by a couple of years. The research and the information that they have is updated and hasn't been placed there. A lot of trials that cancer companies run took place five years ago. Well, the cancer medication and the treatment is totally different today than it was five years ago. And that's not just true for cancer, but HIV and other very serious diseases. So there isn't any reason for someone to give up right away because as i told you the objective here is to get to remission right if you get to remission that means they no longer detect the cancer in you at this point they're telling me i've had an 80 percent response to the medication an 80 percent response means that i'm 80 percent of the way to remission that remission period could last up to a couple years even for someone like me. So here I was only supposed to live a year and a half. I could conceivably get to remission and I could live two years or more in remission. And then two years later, what are the chances that someone right now isn't working on some kind of stage four lung cancer drug that can bridge the gap to my next remission? Because we advance that quickly these days and that's a hope that I have right now. That's a hope that I have to continue living, to continue being with my wife, to continue doing the things that you know I can still do to contribute in this world. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. And you've mentioned the advice of you know not looking on the internet, uh, but uh, I really feel like it'd be great for you to to share what other advice you'd have for people who are experiencing a challenge like this or for anyone in this audience to hear who may end up experiencing a challenge like this down the road, what, what would you want to say to them? Well, I think there's a very important lesson here in just, this is very practical. It's going to seem very simple, but go to the doctor. Don't put it off. I did out of stubbornness. I knew I was sick for probably three years before my diagnosis. There's a very good chance my cancer went from lung cancer to stage four lung cancer during that time. Now, not that I didn't go to the doctor at all during those three years, but I didn't press the doctor to really get fully checked out. And I think there are a lot of people, Dan, who don't want to know the bad news. But that doesn't make sense for two reasons. One, you're not sleeping at night while you're sort of suppressing what you fear to be true about yourself 
that you could be sick. Mm-hmm. And two, virtually every serious medical condition that we have is only going to get worse if it goes untreated. I know that people have skepticism about doctors and hospitals and things like that, but I'm talking about cancer, things of a serious nature that will kill you. You know, those things need to be treated. And I think the longer that we put those things off, we really do risk those things. And let me just like combine this real quick in the same way that I would encourage you to see the doctor and seek treatment for your condition physically, make sure you take care of yourself spiritually too. Mm -hmm. Don't ignore the problem. Don't say, well, I'm 40 and you know, I have good genes in my family and I've got 3% body fat and I eat total vegan diet. So I don't need to answer or ask this question until I'm 70. The likelihood is you're only going to get more stubborn when you're 70 than when you are now. So I would highly recommend that you, you know, consider your physical well-being, but you take care of yourself spiritually too, because you could be looking really good. How many actors, how many musicians, how many famous people have we heard who have taken their own life, sadly? who looked great on the outside, were making the money, they were achieving the success, but inside they were completely empty. Mm-hmm. And I really would encourage people, and, and I would offer myself up, Dan, I'd like to offer up myself to your audience. Anybody who can get a hold of you can get a hold of me. And this is what I want to do. I want to help people. I think people need to understand, I've not only am I facing this, but as a pastor, I've held people's hands as they've died. And as they were dying in the hospital. So I've seen this many, many times. And so I've been in this realm. I know a little bit about it and I can be of help. You don't have to share my faith to reach out to me or if you need help or if you have a concern or something along those lines. Really, it would be my joy to be able to help someone else who is afraid, afraid of their medical condition, who already knows what it is, who has a question about where they're at spiritually or wants to know how I've come to the conclusions that I have spiritually. Yeah. I just want to make myself available. That's all. Yeah. Well, that's, that's an awesome offer, Joe. And certainly for anybody in the audience, uh, as Joe referenced, if you get a hold of me, uh, I can help you get in touch with Joe and just be able to, to talk about some of the challenges that uh, are out there for you and in a spiritual sense. I, I think that's something that would be a constructive thing for a lot of people to be able to do. So that's cool. Just uh, in wrapping up here, Joe, what, what do you think you would like the world to know about Joe Shoup? <laughs> well, it doesn't really matter what the world knows about Joe Shoup. A hundred years from now, you'll only be able to access information about me on Ancestry.com or one of those kinds of websites. Think about it. How many people do you know from the 19th century that aren't found on Wikipedia or in a history book, you know, that you have information on? It's pretty much nobody. Not only does, you know, will even a very famous or well-known person barely be remembered years from now, but by the way, you won't care what they think of you a hundred years from now. And history always remembers things differently, right? Subjective morality changes over time. People look at things, look at the way that we look at our forefathers today versus the way we used to when I was growing up, right? People are taking down statues. I'm not going to get into politics, but you know what I mean? (laughs) And 
<laughs> so about me, n- not a big deal. What matters, Dan, what we learn, what we pass on, and what we teach others. And then do we model what we say we believe? Because if we don't model what we say we believe, then what we say we believe or what we attempt to pass on is not going to be very helpful. And by the way, that is what is actually true about you, not just what you think is true about you. Find a good friend who knows you well and have them really shoot straight with you about who you are, you know, what your doctrine of life is, and do you live by that so that your message is more effective when you communicate it. Dan, as a mentor that you've been to me for many, many years now, one of the reasons why it's easy to follow the things that you've instructed me in in business is because you live by those things, right? I know that to be true about you in the way that you conduct yourself. You never pulled punches about who you were, even when it went back to the very days. Yeah, I have a BMW. I drive very fast. I get a lot of tickets, right? (laughs) (laughs) And now, you know, fast forward to today when we hang out or if we watch a March Madness together or whatever, I know how you invest, you know, and put some money away. I know how you invest in people, and which is something we want to encourage our audience to do, right? If you're successful, that's great. But if you don't pass that on, you know, that you're being selfish, right? A lot of people, a lot of real smart people out there don't know how to do it. Help them do it. And I think that's, you know, that's something that they should get from from watching you. And I appreciate from you just watching how you model what you teach. That's very important for us because we have an old expression in Christianity that Christianity is better caught than taught. And I think for most of business, most of education, uh, the same could be uh, true as well. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was uh, some awesome stuff you shared there at the end, Joe, and I appreciate the kind words you said about me. And I know that that definitely is true for you as well, that uh, you model what you say you believe. Uh, You are as authentic a person as they come. And uh, we see you facing this ultimate challenge in life. And we all wish you the very best in being able to move from one step to the next and uh, and hopefully be able to experience uh, the long life that uh, could be out there for you to be able to continue your impact and all the positive influence that you have in the world. So uh, thanks, Dan. Yeah. Best of luck to you in that. And thank you so much for making time for the podcast, Joe. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. That was Joe Shoup, everyone. Hope that conversation was as riveting for you as it was for me to have it here. Uh, Cool to hear how Joe's experience with Vector and Cutco prepared him for the greater challenges uh, in business and in life that he would face down the road. I think that's a common theme that a lot of people have talked about. Uh, If you're working here in the Cutco Vector company, you can definitely realize that uh, the amount of time you spend, the years you spend here during college are very important in terms of preparation. And remember that when you're experiencing some of the challenges from time to time. Joe talked about finding his niche uh, in the business world. And it's a great thing to consider in your career, right? Is are you working in an area that's in your superpower, in your niche, in your personal monopoly? As a previous guest, Fisher Yan shared, the importance of in pastoring how Joe felt like he was changing lives. 
And again, that's the theme of this podcast. And I think it's important that for all of us in our work or in some place outside of our work, that we feel like we are really impacting the world, impacting people, changing lives in some capacity. I really thought it was instructive when Joe shared how his diagnosis evolved into an opportunity in his eyes. It evolved into an opportunity. I think this is the essence of how anyone should consider any challenge that they face in life is in the context of what is the opportunity underlying this challenge. And that gets us looking forward with optimism. It gets us to feel more positive on a regular basis, which can only be good. And I think it enables people uh, to live better. And so great to hear that Joe has that philosophy. It was sobering for me to hear when Joe talked about how everyone's going to face these sorts of challenges, right? And that it's important to consider one's own mortality. It's important to think about why are we here? What is this all for? Of course, Joe shared his advice that everyone take care of themselves spiritually. That is a decision for each of you to make on your own. What does that mean for you? Whether it has, you know, a religious meaning for you or a non-religious meaning for you, the importance of taking care of our inner selves is obviously critical for everyone here, no matter who you are. And uh, in the end, Joe shared that what's really most important, the things we learn, the things we teach others, the things we pass on to others. Jim Rohn talked about the importance of leaving a legacy and how everyone should aspire to leave a legacy, right? What will be left behind when you are gone? Someone once told me that, you know, a person never really dies as long as the ripple effect of their life goes on. And just think about what ripple effect your life will have in the world. And I hope that leaves you inspired to make a greater difference in your world. And, uh, you know, cheers to Joe Shoup for being willing to talk about this stuff on the podcast. And I hope you guys got a lot out of this very unique episode and that you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. And if you want access to today's show notes, including links to any resources mentioned, visit changinglivespodcast.com. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. I'll catch you back here in a few days for our next story about changing lives.